ahead and open your Bibles, or if you have your cell phone, you don't have your Bible with you, turn on your Bible to, we'll be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 20, 21, and 22. We'll be uh, looking at different pieces from those chapters, different lessons that we get from the life of David. Of course, our series is, uh, as you see, we're going through the life of David, and uh, David is, if you, if you love the Bible, if you love God's word, you love David, because David is relatable, and uh, David was a man of like passions like us. Uh, he was an average guy that God took from the sheepfold and exalted him to, to king of Israel. So uh, just a really lovable guy, but David certainly had his problems, just like you and just like me, right? We've got our issues, and, and so we see some of, that, some of those lessons from David's life this morning, and we'll get into those, but one thing that I just wanted to remind us of afresh, as I was sort of reminded of as I was preparing for this morning, is, you know, I think it's important to remember why we come here each morning. This, this is, you know, we're not, we're not obligated to come to church on Sunday. God's not going to love us more if we come. He doesn't love us less if we don't come. Uh, but the reality is we're here because we, we get to do this. We want to do this. And the reason we, we enjoy coming and hearing God's word Paul tells us in Romans 15, the reason why we study God's word. He said, whatever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that through patience and comfort of the scriptures, we might have hope. So as we study the word of God, as we look at David's life, as we take in these lessons, God is going to instruct us through the scriptures in patience and comfort that we might have hope. And that's, that's just a reminder for us to, to kind of come with a fresh sense of expectation this morning of what God might speak to us. So let's get into it. Starting in chapter 20, just to kind of set the scene here, if you recall from last week, David is on the run. David is literally on the run for his life. King Saul has committed, his, his main passion in life at this point is to kill David. He views David as the threat to his throne he, he's going to be king. He doesn't want anyone else to take that from him. And he sees David as the, the heir apparent. So, so Saul is committed to killing David. So David is, has left his wife. He's left his home. He's on the run. He doesn't have the comforts of, of you know, the day-to-day the -day amenities of life, things like that. And he's scared. He's, in fact, he's terrified, literally running for his life. And in chapter 20, verse 1, it says, David flees from Naoth and Ramah, and he went and said to Jonathan, who was King Saul's son, and David says, what have I done? What is my iniquity, and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? So what does David do here? David looks inward. David becomes introspective. He begins to look at himself. He's trying to think, what did I do that King Saul is trying to kill me? David seemingly had done nothing, really, to deserve the treatment by King Saul. He had killed Goliath. He had uh, been loyal to Saul. He had, he had ministered to Saul. If you recall the story of when Saul was being tormented by this evil spirit, David would play the harp and the, the spirit would flee. So really, seemingly, David, David had done nothing wrong to Saul, but David becomes introspective. And I think this is a low point for David. I think this is error. You know, the reality is, as much of a natural response as it may be when things don't go the way we had hoped, or things don't work out, or it looks like there's a problem, uh, I know as a, as a parent, sometimes if, if my kids act a certain way, or I see certain things in my kids, I think, well, 
what did I do that I should have corrected them or maybe I should have not done something I did? We become introspective, but as much of a natural response as it may be, I, don't, I want to remind us this morning that the natural response, what would be considered the natural response, is not always the biblical response. It's not always the correct way to respond to something. And I want to caution us and remind us as believers, Jeremiah said that our hearts are desperately wicked above all evil. Who can know it? So that's the Bible's commentary on our hearts. So when we try to think, well, I got to, you know, I become introspective and look at myself and, and, you know, look what I've done wrong. That's just going to lead to error. That's just as much as there may be a time for that where we need to assess maybe our actions or our words, and there may be a time and a place for that. That should not be our natural, or that should not be our first response to a problem, to a difficulty. David said in Psalm 18, which, interestingly enough, David wrote Psalm 18. It says, after the Lord delivered him from the hand of Saul. And David wrote this, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. So David learned that lesson through these experiences. Here he doesn't necessarily do that. Here he stops and he looks at himself. I think the better response would have been, as he says in Psalm 18, to call upon the Lord. The Bible assures us that those that who call upon the Lord shall be saved. Nowhere in Scripture are we instructed to look to ourselves for the answer, or, as we'll see in verse 2, to even look to a friend first and foremost for the answer, as much as there may be a time and a place for that, the first response, the proper response of the believer is to look to the Lord. Now, that's hard because, again, that's not the natural response. You, you, may, you may cry out to God initially, but I don't know about you guys, but at least for me, I begin to think, what am I going to do to resolve this? How do I get past the situation? You know, I begin to outline the steps that I'm going to take. And as we'll get into that, more of that in the life of David, we'll see that that type of thinking just leads to error. It just leads to confusion. The reason we're not to look to friends immediately before we look to the Lord upon arisal of of a situation is we see in verse 2, Jonathan's response to David is, By no means you shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing, either great or small, without first telling me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. Now, see, Jonathan was loyal to David. Jonathan, it says that Jonathan loved David more than his own soul. That's how much Jonathan loved David. He was loyal. He was committed to David's welfare. But see, with, as is true with our friends, with our spouses, with maybe even a counselor that you might be seeing, they're going to be conflicted to an extent. They're going to tend to give you counsel, give you advice based on what they want you to believe or what they want to see happen. They're conflicted. They're naturally prejudiced. Again, now hear my heart. It's not that there's never a time and a place to seek counsel from other believers. We're instructed to do that. We were instructed to seek counsel from the elders, from a pastor, from a friend, someone that is a a counselor in the Lord, somebody who is going to give you good godly counsel. There's a time and a place for that. My point is this. The initial response of the believer is to first seek the Lord. Because as we see here with a friend, 
Jonathan, I'll say, he knew that Saul sought to kill David. Saul had already told Jonathan, I want to kill David. There was no mistaking that. Saul had already thrown a spear at David to kill David. So the fact that Jonathan, Jonathan tells David, hey man, don't worry about it. It's a little bit, it's an odd, it's an odd piece of advice here. But it illustrates the way that we're to get our first set of wisdom, our first inclination, our first set of instruction from the Lord. There's an interesting passage in Isaiah chapter 30 where God speaking to the children of Israel through the prophet Isaiah says, woe to the rebellious children. So he's speaking to the children of Israel that take counsel, but not of me, that cover with a covering, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, that walk to go down into Egypt and have not asked at my mouth to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the strength of Pharaoh be your shame and the trust in the shadow of Egypt your confusion. See, the children of Israel made it a habit. Whenever they were attacked by one of the neighboring countries, they would go and they'd seek alliances with another neighboring country to come help them fight their battle. They did that so often where they would just turn naturally. Their first response was to go down to Egypt and hire Egypt to come fight the Assyrians, for instance, or come fight the Babylonians. There's actually another scripture that comes to mind that where God basically tells Israel, the reed that you're leaning on, the staff that you're leaning on is going to split and break and pierce your hand. Basically, it's going to come back to bite you. Because that's the way it is, where, where when we seek, when we first seek things other than the Lord, when we seek a book, we, we, we seek a book on how to grow my business or a book on how to, you know, raise kids, as much of a place as there is for those things. And again, hear my heart on this. My point is our initial response is to not be rebellious children, but to seek the Lord, to not go to Egypt, to not go to other sources of instruction but to seek the Lord. And David falters a little bit here. He stumbles. Verse 3, it says, David took an oath again and said, Your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. So you see David's heart here. You see David's distress there is a step between me and death. Well, verse 4 through the rest of chapter 20, I'll go ahead and leave that to your reading, but basically David and Jonathan construct this plan to determine what Saul's intent was for him, and they find out that Saul's intent truly was to kill David. Looking to chapter 21, verse 1, we read, Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? So David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has ordered me on some business and said to me, Do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I've commanded you. And I've directed my young men to such and such a place. Now, question for you is, what David says in verse 2, is that true? Did the king really send David on a secret mission? No, we know that's a lie. And we see David here, fault number two. 
David, in his time of fear, resorts to lying. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4, speaking of the new life in Christ, Paul says, but you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, Paul says, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. Jesus himself, Jesus called himself the truth. The Bible calls Satan the father of lies. So the Bible makes this very clear dichotomy, this very clear distinction between truth and lying, truth and falsehood. And we have to realize as believers that the Bible puts a premium on the truth. Now, there's a few spots in Scripture where men of God resort to lying, or they resort to basically not telling the whole truth. And this is sort of an anomaly to me. I'm not sure how to reconcile these things, but I do know this. I know that the Bible never gives any justification for lying under any circumstance. There is never in the New Testament, there's never any instruction. In the Old Testament, we never see any lie that's made in one of the stories that works out for good. And I sort of, I, I, think, of, I think of it this way. I think, can God bless a lie? Can God lead through, through lying? And again, I look at Paul, what Paul says in Ephesians 4, and I see that Paul compares and contrasts there. The old man, Paul talks about that in the context of the existence of lying. With the old man, the old nature, there was lying. But Paul compares that, or contrasts that, I should say, with the new man, and Paul says, therefore, put away lying. The Bible never gives a Christian a justification in any opportunity, in any circumstance, to lie. Now, it sounds kind of silly. We think of lying of, you know, well, that's just politicians and kids, right? Just, or maybe it's the same thing, actually. I don't know. But uh, the reality is, as, as Christians, I think we need to recommit to telling the truth. Because I'll tell you, those of you that you work in the world and you know what it's like, you know that people oftentimes lie in business to get ahead. It sounds silly, but people do it. Politicians lie. Businessmen lie. You know, just what the Lord really has spoke, spoke to me through this section of David's story is just recommit to telling the truth. There's never a circumstance to, to ever fudge the truth, to ever kind of, you know, even cover things up and not tell the whole truth. You know, that's sort of like a, like a white lie. The reality is God wants, we, we need to be open and honest and you know what? The good news is if you're open and honest and truthful, you can lay your head down on your pillow at night knowing that you've got nothing to hide. You know, whenever these scandals come out where you find this person was just living this double life, you know, or, or this person was just, this, just caught up in this huge lie about, you know, really who they were, I just think, how did that person ever go to bed at night or ever wake up feeling good about themselves? Um, you know, again, we, we've got to just commit to telling the truth. 
Now, I'll, I'll, I'll close up this little portion of, of teaching online by saying the effect of David's lie here, we think, oh, this is kind of harmless, you know, and I think we justify lying that way. We think, oh, you know, I'll just tell this little lie. It's justified. It was for the person's benefit, right? Which really, if we really search our heart and see, actually, no, we just didn't want to expose what was going on because we, we didn't want to have that tough conversation or we didn't want to expose that we made a mistake, something like that. You know, this lie that David makes, read, for it, read, read it for yourselves in chapter 22, but this ends up getting Ahimelech and all the priests, their wives and their children, murdered by Saul because what Ahimelech does here is he aids and abets David. He gives David, and we'll, and we'll read it here, but he gives David bread and a weapon to use. David's on the run from Saul. David is running for his life from Saul, and yet Ahimelech arms David because David gave him wrong information. David lied to him. The priest answered David and said, there is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young man have at least kept themselves from women. Then David answered the priest and said to him, Truly women have been kept from us about three days since I came out. And the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. Verse 6, So the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread, which had been taken from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg and Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. Interesting phrase there, that Doeg was detained before the Lord. The Lord kept Doeg there. Doeg, again, as I mentioned, later in chapter 22, advises Saul that Ahimelech here aided David in his you know, running from Saul, and that leads to the death of, of the priests, the wives, and the children. So Lying always brings about death. You know, really, that was, if you think about the Garden of Eden, that's how it started, right? Satan is calling into question if God really said something. And Eve begins to follow this, this, this frame of thought and actually lies about what God had said to them. So I think you guys get the point online. So let's, let's continue on in the story. David said to Ahimelech, Is there not here a hand or a spear? Or a sword, for I have brought neither my sword nor my weapon with me, because the king's business required haste. So the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it. For there is no other except that one here. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. So we see from what David says here, we see where David's heart is at. You know, Interestingly enough, David, we don't have it recorded for us that David sought the Lord in chapter 20. He didn't seek the Lord in chapter 21. He does finally in chapter 22. But I think the fact that David says here of Goliath's sword, there is none like it, give it to me. I think that reveals David's heart. David is focused on defending himself. Always be cautious whenever you defend yourself. You're not going to do a good job of it. I think it's better as, as the Bible says, the Lord said, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. It says of Jesus that as he was accused as a lamb before his shearers, it says that Jesus opened not his mouth. I mean, I'm always amazed when I read the story of the crucifixion and Jesus, 
you know, he's being cross-examined by Pilate, and there's the, the, the scourging and all of that. Jesus didn't open his mouth. He didn't do anything. He didn't deserve that, but he wasn't defending himself. I think as believers, we're wise if we're take, to take the lesson to not be quick to defend ourselves. You know, so often our response is we want to, we you know, say, well, I didn't do that, or, you know, and again, that's kind of what David was doing with Jonathan in chapter 20. He says, well, what did I do? What have I done? He's trying to defend himself, you know, trying to find some fault. David here is focused on the arm of the flesh. He's focused on a sword. Really what David should have been doing is saying, you know what, I'm going to get away and seek the Lord and ask God to fight for me. Every time the Israelites asked God to fight for them, he did. Every time they went to Egypt or they went to one of the neighboring countries to hire them to defend them, God stood back and said, okay, go for it and see how that works out. And it never did. Important lessons for us. Verse 10, then David arose and fled that day from before Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, Gath was a city of the Philistines. If you recall chapter 16, David had just killed their warrior. So what's David doing? He's fleeing to the enemy. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Now David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So watch what David does here. So because David's afraid of the king of, of Gath, of Achish, he changes his behavior. He pretended madness in their hands. He scratched the doors of the gate. He let his saliva or his spit fall down onto his beard. I mean, David basically is so scared here, he reverts to acting like a, a crazy man. Then Achish said to his servants, Look, you see the man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Another folly of David here that I think we can, we can learn a lesson from. The Bible says in Proverbs 29 that the fear of men will bring a snare. If we fear men and women, if we fear mankind, we will bring a snare to ourselves. We see that with David here. He actually, here is, here is a man of God. Chapter 16 was anointed with the oil of God as king of Israel. Now he's not, he, he's not acting as king of Israel here, is he? I mean, this isn't very kingly to scratch on a gate of the enemy camp, pretend madness, and let saliva fall down his beard. But see, when we fear men, that will always make us look foolish. Think about it. Who is your father? Your father is the king of the earth. Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah, the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah. I mean, we don't serve some pansy God that's kind of up in, the heaven, up in heaven and you know, can't really do anything for us. We serve a warrior king. And Jesus in Revelation comes back on a horse with a sword. I mean, that's who, that's who we worship. You know, it's, we see Jesus meek and mild in the Gospels, but trust me, 
There's a side of God that he is a warrior. The Bible calls him a warrior. Why would we fear men? Why would we fear mankind? What is there to fear? David said, The Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? See, that's to be our mindset. And I think sometimes as believers, we do an injustice when we begin to get all freaked out because something happened on the world stage. You know, we look at North Korea and at work, we might get caught up in a conversation where we talk about, you know, we're concerned about this or there's terrorism and we kind of, we act, we act afraid. I mean, there's just no other way to put it. We should be speaking words of faith. What is there to fear? Jesus, Jesus said basically, don't fear those that can kill the body, but fear those that can kill the soul. Speaking of fearing God, man can kill your body, so what? You're going to die regardless. But we fear God, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So when we begin to fear the Lord, we won't fear man. It's mutually, mutually exclusive. David here is fearing men, and we know that he's in the wrong place mentally. He's focused on the wrong things. But David in chapter 22, he begins, when he hits rock bottom, as so often it takes for us, David begins to turn his eyes to the Lord. So let's look at that. Chapter 22, verse 1. David then departs from Gath and escapes to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, in debt, everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. Look at verse 3. Then David went from there to Mitzpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother come here with you, check this out, till I know what God will do for me. David gets it, doesn't he? David now, he mentions God, and he says, till I know what God will do for me. Up until this time, David probably could have said, till I know what I'm going to do for myself, or till I know how I'm going to resolve this situation. But do you know, you will never be able to resolve the situation. The Bible never calls on us to resolve the situation. The only time that I could actually think of where the Bible says that is, Jesus says, when you bring an offering and you know you've offended your brother, go and resolve that first. But when, we con when it comes to conquering and taking land and, and taking territory in our lives, it will always be through the hand of the Lord. Paul said to the Galatians, he actually chastised the Galatians. He said, foolish Galatians, you who were saved in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Jesus is the author and he's the finisher of our faith. So often, I think, Jesus authored it, I'll finish it. I got this, Lord. Stand back. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to be good. I'm going to be good. And then I get frustrated because I find I can't do it. I find I might start reading my Bible, and then I kind of fall off. Or I might, I'm going to commit to prayer, you know, for eight hours a day. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to commit to it. And then I, you know, I sleep in or what? I mean, the reality is, expect yourself to let yourself down. You will always let yourself down. 
The Bible in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it speaks of, of taking territory and taking land and conquering and winning battles by the hand of the Lord. The arm of flesh will fail you. The sooner we realize that, the sooner we can sit back and relax. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. What problem are you dealing with today that you've been trying to engineer? Are you facing a diagnosis from the doctors that you've exhausted treatments, you've exhausted medical help? Maybe a son or a daughter that you've been praying for, you, you thought you raised them in the Lord, you know you made some mistakes, but they're just not walking like you want them to walk. Or your spouse is not appearing to, to accept that Jesus is the only hope for them or for your marriage. Give it to the Lord. Give it to the God of heaven and earth that makes beautiful things out of ugly things. Give it to God who gave the children of Israel the promised land. He conquered the land for them. He gave the victory to them if they would just look for him. Yes, they had to pick up the sword and swing it, and they had to go into the battle, but God will always give you the victory. He will always give you the victory. It may not be what you think it should look like, but he will always give you the victory if you give him the battle. And we see that from the life of David. David is in a cave. He's in a cave. And finally at that point, he cries out to the Lord. And listen to what the Lord answers him. He sends the prophet Gad to tell David, don't stay in the stronghold. Depart and go to the land of Judah. David, go back to where Saul is. Go back to where your enemy is. Go back to where your fight is. Don't turn from the battle, but face the battle. Jesus called Peter to walk on water to him. He didn't tell him, go get back in the boat, Pete. You don't know what you're doing. He said, come to me. And when Peter got his eyes off the Lord, he starts to sink. When he looks to the Lord, he walks. And that is no different for us in our battles. James says something which is awesome. James says, if any man lacks wisdom, wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all liberally and without reproach. So if anybody lacks wisdom, they can ask God for wisdom. Lord, what do you want me to do in this situation? How should I handle this? What should I do? And I think sometimes you got to get away and just quiet your heart and just hear what God would say to you. Have a pen, have a piece of paper, and be ready to write it down. And what I find is that so often I expect God to give me, you know, 10 steps to victory or five, you know, tell me the five things I'm doing wrong. But so often I find there's just that still small voice. God just says one word or one sentence, and that's all I need to hear. When Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb, Jesus just said, Lazarus, come forth. That's all he said, and Lazarus came forth. And so often, Jesus, when he would heal, he wouldn't you know, go into these long explanations of medically why he was going to heal the person. I mean, Jesus was just so simple. He just would you know, be healed. You know, I am willing, be clean. Little daughter, arise. 
I mean, just the simplicity of the gospel. We complicate things. We complicate things. So if, if this morning, if you feel like things are confusing and it's complicated and you're burdened and you can't bear it, well, Jesus said his yoke is easy, his burden is light. So my suggestion is that you've taken on burdens, you've taken on yokes, that's not of the Lord. It's not what he intended for you. God doesn't want you to be burdened. And in fact, in the Old Testament, there's a portion where God actually speaks against the false prophets who are walking around Jerusalem saying, oh, the burden of the Lord, the burden of the Lord. And God told Jeremiah, he said, go down and tell them, what burden? What burden have I laid on you? Please tell me, you know? Basically calling them out saying, I haven't, what have I done for you? I, I will establish you in the land. I'll give you the victory. God said, I'll bless your vineyards. I'll bless your, your, your produce. I'll protect you. I'll bless even the seed of your womb if you'll just look to me. What burden? And so often as Christians, I think we, we walk around burdened. And here's David, burdened, living in a cave, stressed out, with a sword of a giant that he killed using his weapon. I mean, David's a mess here. And yet God says, David, go back to Judah. And going back to what James says, he says that God will give it liberally. I thought God was conservative, but apparently he says God will give liberally and without reproach. Kidding, I don't think God is liberal or conservative. I don't know if you guys caught that, but. I love that. James says, God will give it without reproach. What does that mean? What does that mean that God's going to give me wisdom without reproach? It means this. If I come to God a hundred times or a hundred million times, God will never say, why are you back here again? Didn't we just talk about this? You moron. See, that's how I respond to my kids, right? That's how we respond to our, our kids. We get frustrated, you know? That's not, that's the Godfather. I'm talking about Father God, okay? Father, our, our Father gives wisdom without reproach. God will gladly give you wisdom. He will gladly give you direction. We read in Isaiah that when you turn to the left or you turn to the right, you'll hear a voice in your heart saying, this is the way, walk in it. God is wanting to give you direction. God is not hiding the ball. I think so often we think God is, he's a mystery God. He's not telling me why. He's not answering me. He's not speaking to me. And I'll tell you, I just, I just came through a season of this in my own life. Uh, on November 30th, my sister passed away from breast cancer. She was 42 years old, leaving four kids, all under the age of 15. And I'll be honest, I dealt I had to really deal with some, some questions that I had, as I'm, I'm sure you can imagine it would raise. And I started to read C.S. Lewis' book, A Grief Observed, that C.S. Lewis wrote after his wife died. And C.S. Lewis grapples with these same questions, and he was basically articulating my questions for me, and he was trying to answer the questions that I had. And it was just, it was, the book was actually, I would say, medicinal for me, really. But Lewis, at one point, says, can a mortal ask God questions which can't be answered? And he said, I think, I think so. He said, there are questions that are unanswerable. For instance, what shape is yellow or how many hours are in a mile? Questions like that that literally you, you could not answer that. It's, it's a nonsense question. And Lewis 
basically reasons that that's why God tells us in Isaiah that we can't find out his ways. His ways are higher than our ways. And in fact, God even told us his ways are beyond finding out. Paul tells us in Philippians that God would give us a peace that surpasses understanding. So the question is, why do I always look for understanding? And I was looking for understanding. Why would the Lord, who I know God is love, why would he take a 42-year-old woman with four young kids? I can think of lots of people, lots of women that, you know, are bad women, that why can't they get cancer and die? Right? The reality is, I've just, I've just learned through that situation, and it's, it is priceless, really. The question isn't why. The response is, okay, Lord, if this is your will, I trust you. I trust you. You will never have the answer this side of heaven. Don't look for it. Don't look for the reason. Don't look for the understanding. Don't look for the explanation. And so often I get confused. I get frustrated because I'm looking for the understanding. The Bible doesn't promise understanding. The Bible promises a peace that surpasses understanding. David learns that lesson. So let me close by just leaving you with three quick further takeaways from these chapters in the life of David. The first is, be very weary, or be very leery, I should say, when men praise you. Jesus said in Luke 6, this is something that really just... I kind of discovered this in my study, and it blew my mind. Jesus said, Woe to you when men speak well of you, for so did the fathers to the false prophets. King Saul at one point was speaking so highly of David, he couldn't stop praising David. David had killed Goliath. He had effectively given Saul something, a win that Saul could, you know, boast about. Saul could say, look, at, look what I've done under my, you know, my kingship. We've beat the Philistines. We've beat Goliath. My boy David did that. I mean, it was a victory for Saul. Saul was singing the praises of David one day and throwing spears at David the next day. They said on Palm Sunday, they said, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. And the next week, that same crowd was shouting, crucify him. Be very suspicious when men praise you. They may be praising you one day and throwing a spear at you the next. I think, too, there's wisdom in the fact that if somebody will talk bad to you about somebody else, be assured they'll talk bad about you to somebody else. I think it's, it's, a, it's wisdom if when somebody is going to talk poorly of somebody else to us, it's not worth listening to. It's not worth it because the reality is if you entertain that and you in, sometimes you got to at least listen to it, but don't join in in it. There's a difference. Be assured. If they're going to throw a spear at somebody with you, they'll throw a spear at you. Saul threw a spear at David after praising him. And Jesus reminds us, woe to you when men speak well of you. And that's a lesson we get here from the life of David. I'm also reminded from this story or encouraged from this set of scripture. Remember, David was anointed king in chapter 16. 
Abraham was promised a son, and 10 years later got his son. Joseph was given a dream that his brothers and his father would bow down to him, and yet it was many, many years later that he actually realized that dream. In fact, he had to go through prison. Wise is the believer if they realize that the promise that God has given, and, and for some of us, you might sit here today and you might say, God has given me a promise. He's put a dream in my heart. He's put something in my mind, a vision in my mind, a dream in my heart, and I believe he's going to fulfill this. But basically, if I take assessment of where I'm at right now, I'm nowhere near that. It doesn't look like I'm anywhere near my dream. Remember the, the dream of Joseph. One day, Joseph was in, the, was in prison. The next day, he was second in command overnight. And that's what God can do. And we create problems for ourselves when we take the handmaiden Hagar and have Ishmael's. Maybe some of you might say, you've got some Ishmael's running around, don't you? Because you said, I'm going to help God out. Lord, I've, I got your promise, but I need to help you out a little bit. I'm going I'm to have an Ishmael. And it's interesting because God in the story of Abraham doesn't even recognize Ishmael. God won't even recognize Ishmael as Abraham's son. Technically, he was. But God doesn't even recognize him as Abraham's son because God will never recognize a work of the flesh. God will never support a work of the flesh. God is all about the work of the Spirit. David was anointed king, but there was a lapse. Bible commentators uh, theorize that basically this was a few years that David's on run on the run from Saul. So David's anointed king in chapter 16, but it's not until 2 Samuel that David actually realizes that. Do you guys understand that? Do you understand that there's a lapse between the promise and the fulfillment? Just because God hasn't fulfilled his promise to you today, it doesn't mean he's forgotten about you. You're probably thinking at this point, you've forgotten about the time, so let me finish up. Let me wrap up my last point here. The last thing I want to leave with you guys is this. I think David becomes introspective, and David question, you know, goes to his friend for advice, and David kind of stops and freaks out here. But I want to remind you what, what Peter promised us. He assured us, even as Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, the apostle Peter said, don't think it's strange when you're tried by the fiery trial. Don't be you know, concerned when you've got a problem at work. Don't think it's strange when there's a bad di diagnosis from the doctor. Don't think it's strange when you have relational problems. Expect it. Expect it and expect God to see you through and to fulfill his promise. See, we would be discouraged if we stopped with just expecting the problem. But Jesus went on to say, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And that's where, as a believer, we need to live and we need to live in that, that victory, that we are more than conquerors, as Paul says. Let's pray. Lord, we, just, we thank you for these lessons. We thank you for your word that gives us these lessons. Lord, we, just, we ask that even also, as James said, that you would help us to be a doer of the word and not just a hearer. So Lord, we look to you this week. We ask that you would strengthen us. We ask that you would 
Give us the wisdom, Lord. And for those that are here, that, Lord, maybe there's even a situation they're dealing with, something that they're not sure how to navigate, Lord, even now, speak to them. Lord, today, provide time for them to get away for a few minutes and seek you. Even as David said, in my distress, I cried to the Lord. And Lord, we know that those that call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Lord, save us and help us and give us your wisdom. Lord, for this week, we just ask your blessing. We ask for your provision. We ask for strength that we would run and not grow weary, Lord, this week. And that you'd navigate those situations for us. We give it to you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.